0: Verse 1. <laughs> At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. That's what we want. That's the bottom line. That's true, right. Of, of what we seek right now. That's true. But also to recognize, that we don't look at that text and rip it out of context either, as we won't with anything that we do throughout our time together. But ratchet back just a little bit to the previous uh, episode with, with Paul and Barnabas. And there it says in 48, 1348, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit's doing a whole lot more than probably we ever give credit for. And God's already got a plan, but that plan in his sovereign will is for us to speak so effectively that those that he has set out for life in Christ can come to know and come to believe and live it all out. And we're meant to be faithful servants in alignment with the very will of God. His preordained purposes are actually he ordains not only the ends but the means as well and the means for it all is that we would speak so effectively that a great number of jews and greeks believed amen uh, and so we head after that and that we give it our best and as we give it our best to really learn to speak so effectively and use the word so effectively it's going to be important that we make sure that we remain text-centered rather centered. than idea centered. And since we're talking about expository preaching, the, the question is, what, what is exposition? Right. And how is it different from some other sort of, uh, of preaching? What do you guys think? What, what do you think expository preaching is? And what sets it apart from something that would not be expository preaching?
1: Yeah. I mean, the word expository suggests that it's about more explaining or elaborating something that's already there rather than probably bringing a new idea and creating something that's not, which could be another form of speaking. Sure. So
0: I think that where you were at the beginning is, is exactly right. We're going to be trying to go deep into the text, allow it to be as rich as it needs to be, uh, that we, we marvel at the text itself and allow the text to wash over us all in the congregation and be amazed and called to action uh, from that, and that it is the text that does that rather than our ideas. Right. Yeah. But. You can go about a sermon in a variety of ways. You can start with the needs of your audience, and that sounds reasonable. You can start with a great idea that you had and a conviction that you came across, and that actually sounds pretty great too. You can start with an assigned topic that is given to you when you go to the campus retreat, and you have no choice in that, so that sounds good to you as well. Uh, Or you could begin with the text, and where we do actually have some sort of Latitude to be able to make those sort of decisions, we in our family of churches have decided that we're going to actually begin with the text. And that as much as it can depend upon us, we will depend upon the text. We will depend upon the Holy Spirit rather than depend upon our incredible insight to discerning the needs of the congregation or our brilliance in being able to generate creative new ideas that will be able to energize them towards new and different breakthroughs in, in their walk. And so why, why practice it? Well, one of the great things about expository preaching is that it really does bring you to a place where you can do nothing else rather than just marvel at the sovereignty of God and yeah, trust in the work true. of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise you would pull the reins in yourself and say, you know what? I know we're going through the book of Hebrews right now, but I think I need to bring a little gospel yeah. or book of Acts conversion yeah. message right now to the group. And uh, you know what, so I'm just going to put it on hold and let me roll roam, roam with this thing. And the more that we open the door for that, that type of an approach, the more that it really does become us calling the shots rather than trusting that over the long haul we will build right with precious metals rather than wood, hay, and straw if we really do build with a trust, a complete Good explicit point. trust in the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And so what we're going to talk about though is if we're going to be text-driven, how do we as folks that are committed to expository preaching go from the text to the sermon, And specifically, what is that workflow from there to there that will best take that text, honor it, preserve its great and essential idea, but yet bring it alive Mm -hmm. in a beautiful way where people are are eager to take hold of it and do something with it and allow it to affect the lives of the people that we're called to to preach to. And we're called to have a, a prophetic edge as we bring this to the folks, how do do we do that and and make sure that it remains relevant? Because the word of God is relevant. There are cultural backgrounds in which it's immersed, but nonetheless, it it is a a word for all time. And so what I want to first do is, because Jesus does this, whenever he's trying to help people uh, overcome a big mindset shift, and he does that brilliantly on the Sermon of the Mount, he doesn't just say, all right, here's where I want you to be. He actually says, here's where you are now. Right. But here's where I want to get you to. Right. So think about that on the Sermon on the Mount. All right, you've got a mindset now, mm-hmm. Jews, that you think that if you love your neighbor, you're doing all right. Mm-hmm. But Jesus right. says, well, you've heard that it was said, and so you actually live out. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But now I tell you, love your enemies. Right. Do not resist an evil person. Pray for those who, who hate you. Lend to those without expecting repayment. Uh, That's a a radical shift, but he begins where they were. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But now I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So he's, he's got to actually recognize where they are to be able to help them to get to where it is that they need to go. We need to recognize where we are because... Even though for a long time in our community of churches, we've tried to practice exposition, we don't always practice it in the best way. Okay. And as a matter of fact, we may go through books of the Bible right now in Hampton Roads. We're going through the book of Hebrews. Uh-huh. And I know a lot of Pittsburgh. Where are you guys going through in Pittsburgh? Um, we're doing the parables of Jesus right now. So working through through the parables of Jesus. Yeah. Even though you may be working through a parable, even though you may be working through a text of Hebrews, you can still not practice exposition. And as a matter of fact, most people really do not, because it is a very narrow road and a very rare road and a very difficult road to maintain the discipline that is necessary to really practice exposition with integrity. And I want to just take us through, here's where you are, but here's where we're going to get you to. But here's where you are, and here's where you are, I know, because I'm there too. We're all in the same community. We all have the same shared culture, the same shared ethos, and we've... We we all have the same tendencies and, and left to our own devices and to entropy, we will unravel into this process every single time. So let's say we, we do actually begin with a text. Sometimes we begin with the topic, but let's say we begin with a text. Here's my default. If i if I don't have enough time, yeah. then here's here's where I end up. This is my Saturday night special oh. workflow. Oh no are, No. <laughs> So I get the text, and I read it, and I read it maybe once, and then maybe just to allay my guilt, I'll read it a second time, if it's not too long. And then I go and grab a commentary, preferably one that has lots of preaching points and is a little bit fluffy, like Barclay, because, you know, there's not too much to read there, and
1: usually he's got good
0: preaching point in there, and so I, I, go, to the, I go to a commentary. And then after I go to the commentary, I go back and I look at the text again, and I start to immediately try to find three points. Yeah. So, for example, in John 4, a woman at the well, there is a big idea there. The big idea is that Jesus converts this woman by exposing her, and her conversion is glorious and results in great things. That's the big idea. Is the, It's the conversion of the Samaritan woman. Isn't that... I mean, if it was a... A chapter in a DVD. Do mm-hmm. you guys still use DVDs? So, I don't that, know if that media is uh, obsolete or uh, not already. Oh, I I I don't I've right. streamed things now. Right. But if you had a DVD and you had the Gospel of John as a movie, and there is that Gospel of John in the in the Bible series, and you, you got to the, the portion of Jesus with the woman at the well, mm-hmm. right? I don't think the title underneath that would be God wants worshipers who worship him in spirit right. and in truth. Right. right. Yeah. No, it yeah. would be Jesus and the the, the the woman at the well, where Jesus converts the woman at the well, where right. Jesus converts the woman at the well, and she converts all of her her city. Yeah, it would be some That's the big the big picture that that's going on there. Right. But anyway, I disregard that when I'm on my Saturday night special route, right. and as, I, as I'm going through working through, let's say a John four, if that's what's coming up next in the in the preaching schedule, then probably I'll I'll be reading through the passage and looking to highlight words or phrases, and if there's a particularly provocative or juicy phrase, then I'm like, oh, there you go, point number one. There you go. You will never thirst again. That'll preach. Point number one, you will never thirst again. And then I'll, I'll, I'll work, my, work my text through, and where where should we worship? Here, Mount Gerizim, where should it be? And, and uh, you know, and I was like, well, Maybe that's maybe that's my second point. Where should we worship? And, he, and, and the whole time, by the way, I'm in the tangent that the woman is trying to get Jesus off on, so that he won't keep focusing on exposing her and bringing her to repentance. Right. So anyway, off I go on the tangent of like, so where should we worship? You'll Never thirst again. Where should we worship? Oh man, wait, wait, do I preach that? I got some good stuff on that. There's a story I read the other day too. Man, I'll bring that to be, And uh, oh, I saw this video. I think I can throw that there too. Where should we worship? Uh, and then. And then, and then lastly, he told me everything I ever did. Well, be going, I, can, I can like call out sin and stuff on that one. So That's... that'll be my third point. So first point, you'll never thirst again. Second point, where should we worship? Third point, I'll, she, he told me everything I ever did. Three completely different sermons. Yeah. And in, in completely different directions. But you know what? If I if I brought it and I brought it hard, probably a lot of people, that was that was really good. (laughs) And 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 in fact it is easier to preach that that way with all kinds of emotion and excitement because in a sense I'm I'm getting excited about my ideas that are that are just happen to be you know kind of provocatively stated within the the passage. And completely abandoning why that story is in the Bible. Okay. That story is in the Bible for its big idea right. that is overall meant to affect us and, right. and inform us with okay. regards to our conscience. So anyway, that's what I'm doing. I get the I get the three big ideas as quick as possible and get them down. And then after I get them down, I put the text aside and I just start thinking through. Well, after that I, I gotta, gotta I gotta write them down. That's sure. big. Right? So yeah. I write them down, and now it's about all right. What about thirsting? Is there any? Do I know any stories about thirsting? Is there any movies I've seen where a guy like in a desert? Alpha. And then this is where I go, and I start racking my brain. Thirst, thirst, thirst. Maybe I'll look up Google. Uh, you know, really thirsty. Look for videos. Right. Obey your thirst. Ah, spray your thirst. thirst. <laughs> How
1: about <laughs> stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty, my
0: Like uh, it. But, but in a sense, what I'm doing during that section, then, of, of having listed those three things, is now I'm, I'm looking for illustrations. Mm. And the more fun, the more provocative, maybe a prop, maybe a video. And I'm like, oh, let me just, let me just get those in there. And, sure. and somehow thinking, oh, this will really bring it. And then. After I've got all that together, that's all I need. I need the three points, I need the three illustrations. If I got a prop, oh my goodness, the congregation's gonna love me for that one. And I'm thinking about how I'm going to look at this point through through a lot of these illustrations rather than about the text itself uh, or even how how the Holy Spirit's really going to work. And then during communion, I realize, you know, I don't have a whole lot of an introduction. Let me try to Google a joke that yeah. has to do with like maybe a well or something, oh, let me yeah. see, if, you know, maybe, you know, oh, I, can, I can go to Timmy down the well from the old Simpsons episode, oh, No, nah, yeah. it'll work, I don't have time to get the video down, let me see, maybe there's a good joke at some point, point. and then and I'll try to get the joke and get that ready, and then, and then in the very end though, I, I'm not done because I still have the conclusion, right? And so the last step in the default process of the ceremony <laughs> special is, is that I get spiritual at this point, and I trust in the Holy Spirit to be able to really bring me through for a powerful conclusion that, that as I get revved up through the sermon, some of that will kind of bleed on over and kind of come in through right, right. into the conclusion. Oh now, God. you look at it and say, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. That is, if we that don't actually really exert all kinds of influence exactly the way that I would do it every single time Mm. it it really would be left to my own flesh Uh this is the default process Mm. and it's not just mine it's it's most everybody i know goes to this very default process Mm. and i would imagine it it is yours as well to some degree or another it looks like this and as a matter of fact in the last class when we had everybody in here it was difficult there was such a shift from you know kind of. What Jesus was saying, all right, you've heard that it was said, but now I tell you, right? You've done it this way, but now we're, we're encouraging, exhorting you yep. in this way. If we had actually done the last class over this weekend with this process, it would have gone as easy as pie. People would have actually probably been all, all over the, the intensity of their preaching and everybody would have walked away feeling like, oh my goodness, we've got this thing nailed and down. And instead, it was such a steep learning curve that yeah. it was actually much more difficult, and it will likely be much more difficult for you as well. If, if we had just said, okay, here's, here's the way that we're going to do this thing, you know, I'd be like, all right, cool, maybe now we're just going to fine-tune yeah. the way we do this thing <laughs> somehow or another. And, uh, but, but we can't be content with this, even though right. it has become the, the cultural norm sure. throughout our family of churches, sure. but yeah. to really, really fight hard for what it is that we need to do. Brett's actually going to take us over here and actually teach us the right way uh, rather than dwell any longer on my wrong way. So, Amen. Yeah.
1: Okay. Awesome. Come on, Brett. Yeah. Brett. Okay. Brett i
0: keep, keep that recording for you. So, okay. so we have a double. Hey, man.
1: It's great to be together. And um, obviously, uh, Ed has done a great job of explaining all the things that we do wrong and uh, has left it to me to fix this, you can undermine it. So, so wrong. I feel oh, no man. burden, I feel oh, no pressure. i is being recorded, I've got a special shirt. So, yeah. yeah. because as long as I look official and as long as I look good, it doesn't really yeah. matter what I say. There you go. It's incredibly official. As long as I'm like, you know, erudite it's and it's witty it's good. Good. and I have yeah. all kinds of great. Logo, things. logo. Yeah. logo. Oh, oh. The Logos. I got the logos. I'm good.
0: James has the
1: handouts. James James has the handouts. Okay. On, Brett. So, on, so Brett. Given, that, given that this is our typical um, default process, what we want to do is we want to start. Um, I'm sorry, there's one really important thing. Oh yeah yeah, you got oh, oh, yeah, yes. really oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Really official now. Oh. 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 you correcting everything. Even the gold Tops. Oh. Tops. We need to, it's not red and, and gold. <laughs> no, no. no. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what's the right way, what is the right way uh, to do this. Once we've, you know, so, so let's talk a little bit about text selection and then let's talk about Exegesis. We have the opportunity uh, today because we've got a little bit of a smaller group and uh, most of you are, uh, how many of you guys are either in, how many guys are actually in the full-time ministry? Yeah, a good majority of you, and then the rest of you are going to be in Pittsburgh, and I pretty much know who you are. <laughs> so, Burr? Uh, or Maryland. Or Maryland, that's right. Yeah, so let's, let's, talk, right. let's talk a little bit about how do you actually go about selecting a text. Now, for most of you, if you don't lead a church, or you're not responsible for determining the direction of your region or a zone, most of the time you're going to be given a text. But that does not mean that you can't practice an expository discipline. Sure. Right. All right. So, the first, so the first step, um, you see it up on the screen there, the first step in developing an expository lesson is, believe it or not, to actually expose yourself to the text. We call that process exegesis. All right. is that, how many, for how many of you is that word completely new? All right. You've all heard that word, okay? Exegesis, and what exegesis really means, the, the Greek root of that word is to draw out. Alright, or like as Mohinder said in his definition, to expose, to expose the text. So the first thing we want to do when we think about preparing a lesson is I've got to get myself as as far into that text as I can. I've got to put myself in a place where I understand who's speaking, to whom are they speaking? and what's going on? What is the cultural milieu? What's, what's, what's happening to that audience? Jesus standing by the Sea of Galilee. What was he seeing when he looked out? Right. What were those people wearing? What were they thinking? What were they feeling? The first step in exit Jesus is to dive into the text with both feet and to try and put yourself in the cultural, physical, political, emotional life place where that original audience was. When Jesus spoke by the Sea of Galilee, what did those Jewish would-be disciples, what did they hear him say, and why? This is the first task of, of preaching. It's the exegetical process, understanding what was going on in their hearts and in their minds. And Howard Henry is calling us, so I hope it's very, very important. I think I'm going to ignore that. I don't know how to turn off the vibrate, though, so. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is this is the first step, is exegeting the text. So let, let's talk a little bit about this process as a standalone process. And we're going to probably spend 30 or 40 minutes talking about just this discipline. Okay. okay. If we right. don't get this down, True. you cannot practice expository preaching. Right. If you can't expose the text, you're going to expose your own opinions, yeah, your own weaknesses, right. you're going to Very expose true. something else. You'll be exposed, yeah. it just won't be the Bible <laughs> yeah. that you're exposed. Well, got, It'll uh, be God's I Word that's being exposed, okay? okay. okay. And, um, and, 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 and let me, by, by way of, of, um, of uh, uh, whatever, humility or whatever, just, just say that as Ed was talking through that process, we all want to do that. I do that too. You know, James and I were talking the other night working on kind of his outline and we're going back and forth for several days and I found myself wanting to just kind of move past yeah. the, the, the parts that were thorny and not let him figure out his transitions on his own and just kind of get right to the meat that we want to do that. Yeah. That we want to do that. And I think what really happens to us is in that exegetical process, if we, if we come up with our own ideas or our own points as long as those points are biblically based, we feel good. In other words, I, I, I talk about, you know, hey, it's, it's really important to repent and be baptized. Well, that's true enough that mm-hmm. that idea may be very true, but if the text I'm reading doesn't talk about that, right. it's still not expository. Right. Just because it's true doesn't mean it belongs in my lesson. Right. Right. Okay. Just because a principle is right doesn't uh-huh. mean the text I'm reading is dealing with that. True. Just because there's a word, and just because the word repent shows up in the, the narrative that I'm reading, that doesn't mean that that text is about repentance necessarily. Right. right. All right, so some of this gets back to just learning to read critically. And so the first big idea, or the first thing I want you to think about, I don't, I don't want to use that phrase big idea because that has different connotations for it. But the first main idea that I want you to think about is that the first step in Exegesis is to do a very careful reading of the text. Okay. Okay. How many of you have had a chance to look at the videos online that I that I did? There's a, there's about eight or ten of them. Thank All you. Right? They're awesome. All right. So so yeah, those those will be helpful. And so I'm going to refer to those at different points. But f- for the sake of time and and other things, we're not going to break down the text to the same degree that we did on those videos. But if you look at those, we go through things like word studies and we get into a fair amount of detail. About how to begin to do this, but let's 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 sort of start from ten thousand feet here. Okay. The first thing you want to do is you want to do a careful reading of the text. So how do you do that? Let's go over to Luke. 15, or I'm sorry, Matthew twenty-five. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: And I'm using Matthew twenty-five because I've recently taught out of it several times in several different cultures, okay. and and with several different backgrounds and several different audiences. It's also the one that we deal with pretty thoroughly on on the videos. And so I'm going to try and keep us within the paradigm that probably all of you are already thinking. Okay. All right, so, so so, flip your Bibles open to Matthew 25. The first thing you want to do is you want to do a very, very careful reading of the text. I have several recommendations about that. Number one, when, you, when you're preparing for a lesson, the first reading you should do is probably is not in your standard go-to everyday Bible. So if you're an NIV 1984 okay. reader, which I am, start with another translation that's already foreign to you. Okay. Start with an English standard. Start with an American standard. Start with something that's maybe more literal, like a new American standard. But read read what for you is probably a familiar New Testament text in many cases. Read it several times in a translation that's not your home translation. Understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Because what you'll find is you'll find that it reads very differently. And you'll find new things, or you'll see nuances, or you'll see words that are translated differently right. than what you are used to. That's a good thing. Okay. Alright? The second thing you want to do as you're reading is you want to have a piece of paper on your right hand side if you're a paper person or whatever, if you're a typer. Mm-hmm. But but I like to have actually a notebook and I just begin okay. to make notes. Alright, I read Matthew 25, and you know, obviously the the, the parable that we're gonna look at, of course, is the parable of the talents. Where do I start? if I want to study the parable of the talents. If you've seen the videos, you already know the answer to this. But, but where, where would we typically begin if I, want to, if I want to preach on the parable of the talents? Where would we normally begin? Jeff, Kelly, what do you guys think? Where would we normally begin? 14. We'd begin in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25. Again, it will be like a man. And, we, and we'd forget the again, and we're just going to go right into it. Oh, it's, this is a nice little story. Yeah. Isn't this a really cool story? What's why is that not careful reading? What are we? What did we just ignore? Context. Whatever. So context. We just ignored context, didn't we? So the first thing you want to do is you want to begin where the text begins. For some of you, if you're not used to this, it may take you a while to figure out where the text yes. begins. Yeah. Yep. And. Clue number one, it's not where the big chapter numbers are. Yeah, yeah. that's not where your text begins, all right? Careful reading of the text. Use a translation that's not your own. Read it five, six, eight, ten times. Read it, take a few notes. Read it again, take a few more notes. Read it a third and fourth time, and then I'll typically stop, and I'll say, okay, Close my Bible. Can I sketch out what this passage is basically about in my own words? Can I describe it in three or four sentences? Mm. And and I'll I'll, I'll basically translate it myself. English to English, of course. Not Greek to English or something. But I'll actually write down, what is is this passage about? I'm not worried about big ideas. I'm just, could I I illustrate this passage in my own words with my Bible closed? Mm. Could I describe it? Mm -hmm. Then I'll switch translations. I'll read a second one. Maybe I'll read New King James or Revised Standard or, or The Message or something that maybe that's more, more of a free translation. All right, so I'll read something that's literal like an English standard. Then I'll read maybe something that's a little bit more free, like God's Word or one of those kinds of translations. All right? And I'll read that several times. And that will give me a different take on the passage. Okay. And then I'll go to my home-based translation, the one that I know I'm going to preach out of. And I'll read that several times because I want to, obviously, when I get up in front of the, the people I'm talking to, I want to be familiar enough with the text so that I'm not reading it for the first time on Sunday morning. Yeah, right. right. If you've ever had the experience of forgetting your Bible and having to read out of a, someone else's Bible or read out of a different text in a public setting, what happens is you begin to read with the NIV or whatever it is in your head and, and all the words are different, all right? So you want to read multiple times, multiple readings, six, eight. 10 readings. Take good notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to skip through. Uh, so let's start here in Matthew 25 and let's just look at this for a moment. Okay. Um, but before we jump into um, text selection, let's talk a little bit about this actual passage. So where would we, where would we begin this with, with this text? How would we do a careful reading? To do a careful reading of this, where would we begin? Jeff, what do you think? Chapter 44? Chapter 24, and why is that? Well, first of all, mine's got red type, but uh, it's the black type, meaning that it's not Jesus talking. So I'm assuming something's going to be said about where he's at, what he's doing. Right. In okay, case so you got the black and red type yeah. methodology there. Okay. <laughs> I got red, red, what if my Bible was all black though? How do I know? Well, in other words, I hear what you're saying, but how did you actually make that decision? Yeah, because it's not just um, him speaking; it's not all quotations. It's giving a little bit of context of where they are and, who, and what they're doing and who he's talking to. That's right. Right. So first thing you want to do with careful reading is you want to figure out who who is saying what to whom? What's happening here? What's actually happening here? Chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus leaves, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then in verse 3, the disciples come as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they say, Tell us when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are Jesus' answer to that question. Mm. That entire narrative is Jesus answering a question. That's your context. That's your context. That's where the idea begins. So up on the screen, you'll see, when you, when you, when you start to think about how am I going to choose my text, here's a way to break it down, all right? Think about one big story or one self-contained idea, all right? Let's, let's say, for example, that someone says, you know what, bro, I need you to preach next two, uh, next Wednesday night. What do you want to preach on? I don't know. Think, come up with something, okay? It's not going to happen very often, but let's just assume that that's what happens. So you've got to go out and you've got to decide, okay, what am I going to preach on and how am I going to read that text? You know, look for natural breaks in the text. Okay, so here, what we just did in Matthew 25, this one's actually a little more difficult because I think what most of us would probably do is we'd start at the beginning of chapter 25, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like. And if you read very, very carefully, you may realize that all three of these parables probably all go together. But unless we're careful, we we don't know where that text actually begins. Right. So you've got to figure out where is the beginning of this passage? Because what most of us will do is we'll jump right into a chapter and verse number and we don't think about context. So the first thing you want to decide is what are the natural breaks in this text? Where does this parable of the, in this case, the talents, where does it actually begin? So to, so to preach on the parable of the talents, honestly, you need to begin in chapter 24. You don't need to dig your way all the way through to 25-14, but you need to read your way through and find it in its original home context. All right? Okay. <laughs> or a single story. For many of us, we'll choose a self-contained story. Luke 15 is something we're going to talk about later in the videos because you have three fairly self-contained parables. I believe they're really all stacked, and it's all one unit of narrative, but they're fairly self-contained. They have a very simple beginning and a very simple ending, and typically they're, they're easy to discover. Um, one, one, parable, one paragraph or one issue, if you're in one of the epistles, or if you're in Galatians chapter 1, you don't just read 1 through 9 because that's where the paragraph break is, but you're trying to figure out a single idea or a mm-hmm. single unit, all right? Old Testament preaching is a little bit more difficult, but maybe you want to deal with a certain legal idea, mm-hmm. one law, one narrative. Um, Old Testament's a little more challenging because you'll have long compound narratives. You, want to, you don't want to preach on the life of Joseph in a 30 or 40 minute lesson, it can't be done. You may want to talk about one incident in right. Joseph's life, right. but to yeah. do that you're going to need to do a fair amount of reading yeah. in yeah. Genesis and you're going to need to understand before and after. So choosing your text, it's not as simple as just, well, here are the 15 verses. Right. But you've got to do some of this careful reading work that we were just talking about if you're going to do a great job selecting your text. Questions on that? Any comments on that? Thoughts on that before we move forward? Does that all make sense? Mm -hmm. How to choose a text? Um, If-then propositions, one vision, one prophecy. We recently spent a lot of time going through the book of Revelation in, in Pittsburgh, and that was challenging and yeah, exhausting nice. and it took eleven months, I think, or something like that. Oh, it took a really long time. And finally we finished it. We I copped out and we finished it with a troast night to I do like remember, the last yeah. four chapters. Yeah. Because I was completely was spent, you know it But it's really, really challenging, you know, texts like that that are very, very yeah, yeah. Uh, obscure that take a huge amount of background information. You want to choose your texts really, really carefully, okay? Um, all right, so choosing your text carefully. Then, so during exegesis, the, the next step after, after significant exegesis is to try and develop your big idea. Let's go back to Matthew 25 and let's walk through how we um, do this exegetical process with a little bit more depth, okay? So we talked about reading, reading, the importance of rereading, um, and, and so a couple of things with reading. Here are some, here are some tips, some things that I do okay. when, when I'm reading, alright? So. We talked a little while ago about the first thing that you want to do is you want to learn to ask good questions of the text. So what are some of those questions? If I'm sitting down reading a passage, what are some of the questions that I'm asking in my mind as I'm reading? Well, the first one is, where does this text begin and where does it end? We talked about that, right? You know, these parables here again in Matthew 25, what's really happening here and what are they in response to? Where does this text begin? And where does it end? Second thing I ask is who's speaking? God. Well, okay, but is it Jesus? <laughs> right. Is it Peter? Okay. Right. Is it yeah. the Pharisees? Oh. You know, one of the I had a harrowing experience a number of years ago where I, I was I was uh, pre- preaching a text out of Mark and. Um, I was going along and, 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 and I wasn't paying attention as I was preparing and I hadn't spent as much time preparing the lesson. And I got to a point where Jesus was actually in a dialogue with the Pharisees and I had I realized I had built a, one of the, the main ideas in my lesson around something that the Pharisees actually said instead of something that Jesus actually said. And I didn't realize it until I was actually in the middle of my lesson because I didn't do careful reading and I didn't have a red letter Bible like Jeff so I wasn't cheating. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gotta have a red letter Bible, man. Yeah. You know, so that you don't make it And and so what happened was, I, I wasn't paying attention to whose mouth this idea was coming out of. Um, let me point. give you a for instance from the olden days of our movement or whatever we're calling it these days. <laughs> Bring us back. Take us. I remember a long time ago, um, I was I was a young Christian, and I was in a time. And I was in some sin, and I was struggling. Disclaimer. And I was feeling like, yeah, I have a whole I was in college. I was—I may have been a disciple for a year or two. I'm not sure, okay. but I was in at this opposite time, and I was struggling with some things, and I was confessing some things to an older Christian. And uh, he opens up the Bible and he goes, "Well, you know, the Bible says that God doesn't listen to sinners. So until you really deal with your life, you're you're going to have trouble with your prayer life." Does anybody know where that passage is? In Proverbs 20. Well, there, there's one in Proverbs 28. There's also one in Acts. Does anyone know where the one in Acts is? I think it's I think it's uh, the story of. Uh, is it in the story of um, of um, Cornelius? I think there's isn't there one? Over oh, a the prayer prayers. Of. Right. Yes. So what's what's the problem with that piece of advice? Is that verse in the Bible? Is that phrase in the Bible? Is that is that st- sentiment in Scripture? Yeah. It is. Yes. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that piece of advice? Taken out of context, right? What has what has that piece of advice forgotten? Who says that, right? Who says that? Is that God saying that, or is that God parroting a negative human argument? We do this with Ecclesiastes too, or with Job. You read the book of Job, and there's all these crazy ideas. The question is, who's saying those? Is that one of Job's friends' flawed arguments? Or is that actually what we're supposed to believe? Right. Yeah. This is a perfect example where a lack of careful reading and a misunderstanding of context, you'll get a wrong doctrine. Yes. Wow. True. Yep. Right. Bro, you need to get out of sin before God will hear your prayers. Then how did Cornelius become a Christian? Right. right. How does any of us yeah. right. become a Christian? Doesn't that actually undermine what John 16 says the Holy Spirit does sure. yeah. in the life of non Christians and in the yeah. world? Right. It convicts world So again, that phrase may be in scripture, but that may not mean that may not be what it means right. at all. Right. Alright. Read, read, reread. Who is saying this? Uh-huh. Who is saying this? Another question I'll ask, especially if I'm in the gospels, is Jesus answering a question or making a statement? Mm. Is Jesus answering a question or is he making a statement? Here again in Matthew 25, Jesus is clearly answering a question. Right. These people are not declarative statements in and of themselves. They are an answer to a question. They're a, a very long and rather indirect answer yeah, to a question that we later find out to our chagrin in 24-36. There is no answer to this question. When are you coming back? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows when I'm coming back. The most important thing to remember when you're exegeting a text, and it's right here on the screen. How many of you guys have heard this idea before? Yeah. Yeah. A text cannot mean something to us that was foreign to the original audience. Can't mean that, right? The first task of exegesis is to put myself in the shoes of the person that the text is being written to. What did the disciples understand when Jesus told the parable of the talents? What was their context? Right. What was the question he was answering for them? What were they thinking? As they stood there at Herod's temple and they called his attention to those buildings, what did they see? And yeah. what was it like for Jesus to say, that magnificent structure, one of the wonders of the ancient world, is <laughs> going to be destroyed. Yeah. What did that feel like for them? Wow, sure. wow. This, yeah. this huge important thing in our, in our religious system It's going to be ripped down. Is Jesus going to do that? Are we going to have another table-turning event, and this time he's going to rip the place to shreds? What were they thinking? Sure. Right? What were they thinking? Because the text can't mean something to me that it couldn't have meant to them. All right? So the parable of the talents in verse 14 is not about financial investments. It's not about the stock market. It's not okay. advice for Christians to, to gather wealth. Right. It's not right. advice for Christians no. to do financial planning. Mm. Oh. That is not what that text is about. Oh. It has financial metaphors yeah. in it. It has investment strategy in it. It has those themes in it, but that's not what they heard when they heard it. Right. Okay. That's not what they heard okay. when they heard it. Hmm. And so to make sure that we don't read foreign ideas into the text, the first thing we want to do is we want to read our text carefully. The second thing we want to do is we want to develop a preliminary, what we we'll call a preliminary subject and complement. All right. Okay? Subject. How many of you guys have read the Robinson pretty thoroughly or read the vast, read at least the first half of it? Okay? So what is the subject when we say develop a subject? What is the subject? What do we mean when we say that? Yes. What is he talking about? Right. What, what is the passage actually saying? Right? What is it about? All right? And what is the compliment? Mo? What's being said about a subject? What's being said about said subject, OK? Yeah. Boy, that's a really nice red car. Yeah. Right? What's the subject? The car. The car. Yeah. What's being said about that car? So nice a red car. I don't know how nice and how red it is, okay? <laughs> yeah. Really simple, okay? The subject, what, what's the other talking about? He's talking about a car. What's he right. saying? He likes that car because it's red. Mm-hmm. Alright? So, how would I come up with a big idea from that? What is the big idea? Anybody know? I know we're skipping ahead a little bit. Does anybody know how we would do that? <laughs> subject and compliment. Why do we why do we set up subject and compliment? What's What does Robinson say is the purpose of that? What does that do for us? It It, it, it generates the big idea, doesn't it? Right? So so the first thing you want to do is you want to figure out what is the author saying in this passage? So you would read your parable of the talents, which we'll do in a little while. But you'd read this. And what is the author saying? What's being talked about? Well, the context, of course, is preparing for the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. And what is Jesus saying about the need to prepare for the return of Christ. That's how you figure out what the parable of the talents is actually about. Mm-hmm. Subject and complement, all right? Mm. Um, there are subject complement exercises all through the book. Did yeah. you guys do those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> Did you guys actually write some of those out? Um, this yeah. is super important, yeah. right? This is kind of how you get to the, 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 um, the meaning of a text, right? What is this text actually talking about? Let's go over to an easy one. Let's go look at Luke 15 here for okay, a minute. Yeah. I think this one's a little bit Start more reading. simple, Start and I think it's, it's in some of the later slides as well, I'm pretty sure. Come on, Brad. It's good, Luke easy? 15. Good okay. um, Luke 15. Let's look here at Luke 15. Let's look at the parable of the lost sheep, okay? Very, very simple. Uh, somebody want to read that, just um, verses 1 through 7? Uh, just read, read it nice and loud so that it gets picked up. Oh, sure. All right. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you the truth. I tell you that in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay. Let's try Let's try subject complement here a little bit. Okay. All right. What is the subject of this parable? Anybody want to take a crack at that? What is the subject? What's being talked about? The lost. The lost. Yeah. Okay. What is Jesus saying about the lost? They should be sought. They should be sought. Right. Those are very simple, but that, that's right, right? What is Jesus talking about in this passage? He's talking about things that get lost, mm, sheep yeah. in particular. What is he saying about lost sheep? That they should be pursued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else, what, what might be another subject and complement from this? Obviously, those aren't the only ones. What else could we, could we come up with from this? What else might this passage be saying? Well, oh, what do you think? How, how does God view do the lost? Ah, how does God view do yeah. the lost, right? This of course, remember that the subject can sometimes be stated as a question. Sometimes it's easier to think of the subject as the question and the complement as the answer, right? How does God feel about the lost? Now, let's look at context here for a minute. Who is this passage addressed to? Senator yeah. Pharisees. Pharisees. Pharisees, mm-hmm. What else? What particular kind of Pharisees? What were they thinking when Jesus said this? Mm. They were upset that Jesus was spending time with sinners. Alright, they were upset that Jesus was spending time with sinners. Look at verse 3. What's the first English word in verse 3? So then. 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 <laughs> What does that suggest about context? You guys following me here? What does that word suggest? It's addressing this issue. Right, that Jesus is responding to Pharisees with a particular kind of attitude. Exactly, yeah. Right? This is what's called tension, okay? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this, this creates tension, right? Yeah. So knowing that, let's take another crack at subject and compliment. I think Elaine is correct. What might another subject for this be? What might be another question that we can ask about this? Okay. I know this is a difficult exercise. We'll Who just work we it. spend time with? Hmm. Who should we spend our time with? That could work if, what would your compliment be there? Lost sheep? <laughs> the lost sheep, yeah. How about this one? How should I feel about the lost? Mm-hmm. Sure. I should diligently pursue them so that I don't become a Pharisee. <laughs> mm-hmm. ah. yeah. You guys see how I got yeah. to that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? Or I should I should be careful to love the lost so that my heart doesn't become hardened towards that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, subject, compliment. Let's, look, let's do it again. Lost coin. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Yeah. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Mm-hmm. What's the subject? Phil, what's the subject? What's being talked about? A woman her silver, silver coins. Okay, a woman her silver coins. Um, I think, think more broadly. What's being talked about? Um. What's what's the main thing going on here? Any other ideas? Anybody else? What do you think, Sean? What is God's attitude towards uh, finding something? Finding the lost. Okay, I think that's a good one, right? You know, what, what's our attitude towards finding something? I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Jessica. Jessica. How does yes. God cherish the lost? How does God cherish the lost? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you think, Mo? What do you think? Another subject. How how does how how does God feel about Regaining something valuable that was lost. Mm, right, maybe there's that sense of value here, yeah. right? What does God value? Or what is this? You know, if, I think to Phil's point, let's talk about the woman here. If you were going to think of a subject with the woman in mind, Jeff, like how might you phrase that? What might be a question that you would ask? Um, what does the woman do to show that she cares? Okay, What maybe what does the woman do to show that she cares? Can you sharpen that a little bit? Come um, on, Bill. How does the woman mm-hmm. search? Maybe even up a level. Like, how, how about how does the woman feel about losing something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Or how does the woman react to something she loses? Mm-hmm. Answer? She searches diligently. She searches, searches diligently <laughs> until she finds it yeah. and rejoices when she does. Right. right. Again, who's our audience for parable number two? Still the Pharisees, Same. 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 Still the Pharisees isn't it? Yeah. Still in what frame of mind? Yeah, kind of. Why, why, Jesus? Why are you spending all this time with these people? Yeah. Let's take it one step further. Now you have two parables stacked on top of one another. Uh-huh. What picture is beginning? To, if you were gonna, if you were gonna read both of these together and come up with a subject, what are some things that you might say? If you're gonna take your camera back to, even further, right? Broaden your lens even further. Maybe somebody new, Austin. What do you think? You got the hard one. I'm sorry, man. It's okay. <laughs> well, Pittsburgh. <gets> <laughs> <I love those. laughs> Welcome to the deep end of the ocean, man. <laughs> um, so, these consider the two as a, as a unit, right? Both these lost ideas, kind of. What, what do you think? How might you create a question that would encompass both concepts? Well, I'm thinking along the lines of, um, as far as I, I don't know exactly how to fit it into the way to say
0: it that way, but i um, more getting at, I guess, how should we model our view of the lost and the answer being after God's view,
1: um, because they both seem to deal with last of how God views the lost. So. All right, I think what you did there is you created a compliment, how should we view the lost or how should we model our view of the lost, and then you sort of skipped over the compliment maybe more to almost the big idea. Right? So let's, 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 let's back it up. I, I like your idea. How should, we, how should we model our view after God's? I think that's, I think, you know, in terms of the lost, what, what is the answer to that question? More, more specifically from the text. You see what I mean? You sort of jumped over that to the bigger principle that actually might be something you would preach on. But like your answer to your, so if your subject is your question, how should we model our view of the lost? What do these two parables suggest the answer to that question is? There should be a diligent pursuit, right? or, a, or an aggressive pursuit, or an active pursuit. That, that's a fairly, and you go, well, that's really, really simple. Yeah, but that's where you start. Um, right. Yeah. Right? You always start with simple. What is the basic meaning of this text? Right. We're talking about names right. of Jesus. We're talking about content. How do I decide what this passage is really about? Who is, it, who, who is, who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing Pharisees. What well, kind of, what is their attitude? What, what is their state of mind? And what is he saying about their state of mind? What do these parables show us about what he's trying to say to them, right? They're thinking a certain way. These parables are to challenge that thinking in a very specific way, all right? And the goal of the first step in exegesis is to boil the passage down to the most simple, basic elements, People with a bad attitude towards sinners, they think Jesus is wasting his time. He says, no, they're valuable and you should search for them like it was money or sheep. Very, very easy. Okay, really, really simple. But that that exercise tells you, okay, what am I talking about in this sermon? Mm. I'm talking about seeking the lost. This lesson, if I teach it out of this passage... That's what it's going to be about. It's not going to be about shepherding. It's not going to be about taking <laughs> care of people. It's not going to be about leadership. It's not going to be about finances. Those are all in it, but those are not the big idea. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Right. So good this point. this exercise safeguards you from getting into the weeds. Okay. That's good right. point. You go, well, this is so simple, it, but it's not. It's actually, this challenging yeah. because what we yeah. want to do is we, remember, remember our default process, we want to go right to How am I going to preach this? What are my points going to be? What we're doing brings us up up to a high enough level so that we can say, what's actually happening here? They're complaining. Jesus says, you should think differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to teach a lesson on this, what I'm talking about is my heart for the lost or my attitude towards the lost or the way I should view the lost or the pursuit of the lost what we've done by developing subject and complement is think of it as you put a fence line around your lesson. Right? I've got I'm gonna teach within this box now, if you will. Right? I'm not gonna talk about being a great shepherd and being a leader. And how could you lose that sheep, bro? And how could you not, no 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 no, this is not a D group on on not helping a lost Christian. That's not right. what this is, right? You see what right. I'm saying? You can't use this passage that way. We should do that, but not from this passage. Right. Alright? Let's do another. Let's do another one. Let's look at a little more complex. Now we have okay. the parable of the lost son. We're not going to read this. All right. I'm hoping everyone is familiar with this passage. All right. Okay. Um, let's do subject and complement from this one. This there are probably multiple possibilities here. All right. So remember, the subject is doing what? It's answering the question. What is being said? All right. What is being said in the parable of the lost son? What do you guys think? Who wants to take a crack at that? What's the main thing that's actually being said? What do you think, Elena? I think that it's talking about um, just how we should react when when something is lost and something is found. You know how how our how our view of the
0: loss should be and how our view of
1: the found should be. Hmm. All right. How our view of lost and found can we sharpen that a little bit more? What do you got? What do you think?
0: That some who have been found. May choose to walk away, like a son. A son might walk away. How should we treat them?
1: Hmm. Okay, I think I think that's possible. We could say, okay, how am I supposed to feel if somebody wanders away, or how does God feel about yes. something that wanders away? Yeah. Compliment would be. Answer to that question is. Watching. <laughs> no, no, no. That's right. Keep going. That's right. Uh, well, ha- what is the well, end based on the parable, what is the watching answer? Watching and incredibly welcome, welcoming. Yeah, right, kind of watching up. in hope and yeah. waiting for the return or something like that, right? So yeah, you know, right. I think that's absolutely valid, right? I mean that, that there are again, there could be multiple subjects. This is a more of a compound parable, there's mm-hmm. more going on here. Sure. But sure, you know, how 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 does God feel when someone wanders away from his house? Sure. How does God respond when someone wanders away from his house? Mm-hmm. He diligently waits and watches. He stands on the porch. You mean, you know, and, and, and he welcomes them back gladly. Absolutely, perfect, perfectly valid, right? Let's do another one. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I think it's talking like about just
0: the journeys of the two different type of people: tax collectors and religious.
1: So, how people. would you how would you do that as okay. a subject? Like, what would be um, your question?
0: I guess um, how do different types of people come to humility in a relationship?
1: Mm. Um, I think we want to be careful with that one because you're, you're going kind of towards a, towards a point there a little bit. Okay, gotcha. And, you're, and you're, you're not quite at the 10,000 foot level there. Right, You're a little bit down towards a, what would, I, what would I do with this? Step it back up. I think that idea is good. Can you maybe think of a way to sort of bring it up a little bit higher? Um, maybe like how
0: God brings his children back to him or bring them to a point of humility or choice.
1: Sure, how, how, does, how does God bring people to Him or how does God welcome different kinds of people back to Him? Yeah. I, I, th- I think that's that's pretty good, yeah. And the answer is? Well, it's different for these two people. Uh, but is it? What does uh, God do with both sons? Shows them compassion, maybe? Or... And doesn't He pursue them both? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. One, He runs out to the village. The other, He steps outside the party and goes. And God pursues In this case, I think both the Pharisees and the Gentiles, right? God treats them all the same. He pursues, right? How how does God feel about people that are lost in different situations? Answer, He pursues them both the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. see how I got to that? Right. Everybody follow that? It's okay if you say no, we'll do it again. Does everyone understand how I got through that process, right? Because I know this is a brain twister. This is not the way we think about Scripture. But it has to be. It has to be the big thing about Scripture. If you weren't an English major and you didn't study Latin in college. Uh, <laughs> this, this is very, very, it's, and it's foreign to me, and I'm supposed to be trained in it. It's very foreign, right? Mm-hmm. Linda, you're chewing there, right? You, you, is this, is this, is this? Is your, I, I see smoke coming out of your ears. There you go, <laughs> No, I don't mean to pick on you. Do you understand how we're, how we're getting to this, right? Let's try another one. Someone who hasn't answered yet. Subject compliment for the parable of the... Of the lost son, or the two lost sons, yes. Um, Brittany. Brittany, hi, Brittany. Hi. Um,
0: I would say, how is God's grace different than how people can, people
1: think of it, or how it's easy for? I like where you're going with that. Can you sharpen that a little bit? I think that's right. Can you sharpen that a little bit? Because mm-hmm. again, if you were preaching on this, that's exactly you. You might start with that, idea, but you got to fine tune that. Try, try it again. I think you're in the right ballpark, though. Try it again. What is Hmm. What like? Or what does God's grace look like? Mm-hmm. 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 And what does it look like? What's the answer?
0: It looks like compassion and unconditional love.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say that it contains those things. Try, try again. I, no, it's, it's okay. Try, I know this is new. Try again. Yeah. Again, try and sharpen that up. What does God's grace look like? Based on this parable, what does it look like? It looks like a thought I walked in the center. Yes. It's that of a parent welcoming home a child. That's that would be a great lesson. Yeah. See if you just just keep thinking. See how you came up with you just. And this is what this is all about, guys. It's the subject yeah. complement is to narrow our yeah. focus, to sharpen our focus. Yeah. What is this passage and its essence? What is it about? Right. This is a difficult exercise, but it's super important. How do I go from all these words to no, no, no? What's what's? I think. Um, the, Robinson uses the phrase somewhere somewhere in his book, you think and you think and you think and you, you work this and, and, until your, your um, subject and compliment rise like a harvest moon or something yeah. like that. Is the <laughs> yeah, like, there it is. And you yes. go, how did I not see that, right? Yeah. This, is, this is where it all begins. Let's do it again. Somebody else want to take a crack at, at the parable of the lost sons. What's another possible question and answer, subject and compliment here? Maybe uh, Drew, somebody who hasn't answered yet. Um, The subject
0: could be the sins of the sons or the... the Phrase it as a question.
1: Phrase it as a question. subject is phrased as a question. How can we sin against God or how can we wander from the path, both in the way of the two different sons? Okay, Um, that's not bad. But again, given the context of the whole chapter, I don't think that's as sharp as it could be. I don't think this is necessarily... About wandering, I think wandering happens in there. But given given verse three, given verse two and three, given who Jesus is talking to, try try again. Try and sharpen that a little bit. Um, so you want to sharpen but still broad? Well, I mean, I mean meaning, meaning meaning yeah. Step 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 back a few a few feet. Sharpen the idea, but 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 bring the lens out.
0: Um, how do the Pharisees?
1: And sinners wander from God? Or how does the sun straighten the path? How about how about taking the personal pronouns out and just saying, what does it look like to wander from God? Right? Or or you know, how might we wander from God? Answer.
0: Depending on the sun, sin, arrogance, greed, figure.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think again. Try and try and make that sort of a, a more of a universal. How do people tend to to Like, what happened to the son that made him do that? I mean, for, forget the specifics of the two sons. What do they have in common? Sin. Mm-hmm. And what, what specifically kind? What do you think? Like if you were going to group them together, what do they both have in common? Right. Oh. What were their issues with? What were their daddy issues? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah independence ingratitude yeah. Um, ingratitude right what causes us to maybe wa- what causes us to wander, a, uh, to wander from God that's a good one ingratitude that's a good one right I think see and just, just thinking again really really high level try not to get too down into the which son is which no big idea you know just you got you got two guys both living in their father's house they both end up estranged from their father. How did that happen to them? Yeah. How did that happen to them? Yeah. Right. And again, I think always be, always be thinking about context, okay? 15, 1 and 2 gives you the fence lines yeah. for, for, for dealing with the parables in, in, in Luke 15, okay? We, we, we can't have a d-group and talk about um, not being rebellious <laughs> from, from Luke chapter 15. Oh, really? You can't. <laughs> Not, not if you're going to really be... On, it's
0: true.
1: All right, find another scripture <laughs> yeah, yeah. for that. Okay? This passage is about reconciliation. Yeah. This pa- passage is about treating the lost, not yeah. being lost. I mean, the, the, the big framework here is lostness and foundness, lostness and savedness, right? Not getting estranged from the Father. There are other words in here, but there are not other ideas in here. Does everyone follow what I'm saying? No. Yeah. The, the, the importance of this exercise is it gives you your fence line. Yeah. Right. What can I and can I not deal with in Luke 15 to be true to the text? Right. Not what have you heard preached, not what would you like, like to preach. But right. right? <laughs> again, expositorily, what yeah. is my fence line? Okay. Where can I and where can I not go? Now Luke is awesome this way, um, because he'll stack these things as well. Yeah. Yes, James. Thought comment. Yeah, uh, just a question. Could you have a D group? I mean, ideally of uh, <laughs> <laughs> a conversation. Jumping into the default process. Here it goes. Right. Well, could you have
0: it where, or a D time where you're sitting with someone and they're expressing rebellion or you see rebellion and you expose through this parable that that might be a result of
1: a lack of gratitude. Through
0: this parable, kind of going from Drew's subject compliment.
1: Um, Yeah, you, you could, but again, remember that you know in a one-on-one detail, you may or may not trying to be be using an expository method, but I, I would probably lean away from that here because again, I think what this, this text is really talking about. Yeah. I mean, there is rebellion in it, but the but the, the, the context really is about how should I feel about people that wander away? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not am I rebellious towards God? I mean, that that's a given. Rebellion is everywhere in the New Testament. You could find it every four <laughs> verses, probably, right. Right? If, if you wanted to. Right? There's always some kind of rebellion, right, right. you know, going on in our minds. All right. Um, so this is subject complement. Let's do another one. Okay. Um, let, let's let's try and do one with the whole chapter. Yes. Uh, yeah. Quick question. Um, I know. In the book, it says that a subject can never be like one word. It always has to be like a statement or a question. It's That's typically something. framed as a question, okay. right? Or a concept, yeah. Okay, but earlier we were talking about like the lost sheep, and the subject,
0: Lisa said, could be the lost, just in general. Could, like, the situation that we were talking about earlier, the lost son just, could the subject just be like ingratitude or gratefulness? Or does it always have to be. I
1: think it's always helpful to frame it as a question, okay. because the compliment is always the answer to that question. All right, that makes sense. Right, so the subject is not the... I mean, because when you think subject, subject of a sentence, oh, what's, what's the noun, what's the direct object, you know, this isn't that kind of subject. It's the subject, subject meaning the, 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 the main issue that's being addressed here is, is, I mean, the lost sort of, but it's really more our attitude towards the lost, and we know that from the context of fifteen okay. two, right? So it's, this is the, that's why context is so important, right? It's, all of these texts, all of these parables are about the lost, generally speaking, But sitting where they are, they're really Jesus giving them some perspective on how to feel the lost, or how to feel about lost things, all right? So let's try and take one from the whole chapter perspective. How would we tackle, um, and again, we would never probably preach it this way, although I did a few weeks ago actually kind of preach this whole chapter um, as a standalone standalone lesson. But what might be the subject of the entire pericope, this whole stacked set of three parables? What do they all have in common? What do you think? Uh, It could be um, how God views the lost in general. How does God feel about lost things? Mm -hmm. Now having three different examples, what might a good salty compliment for that be? How does God feel about lost things? Again, based on these three things. Yes? That
0: lost things are worth all of his effort and all of his time. All of his effort and all of his time? And why are they
1: worth all of his effort and all of his time? What are they like? Because they're like songs or money or sheep. Exactly. They're like things of value to him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things that he values, right? So let's take another crack at that, Jenny. What's another. So if our subject is, how does God feel about things that are lost? values all of his children. Okay, let's try it again. He values things, how about this? He values things like they're his own, mm-hmm. or they're things of great value to him. So, so think about this. Jesus has here the Pharisees. We're going, to, we're going to skip ahead here and show you how this helps us. Verse 2 says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered John, John we're in fifteen two, Luke fifteen two. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Interestingly enough, that's singular. So the so the, the lost mm-hmm. coin, the lost sheep the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, I think it's actually one parable mm-hmm. with three elements. Okay. Right? So what do all these three things have in common? Yes. Um what what happens? When the lost is found. Well, they all have rejoicing involved, don't they, right? So there's there's, there's that sense of celebration. That's huge, right? If you're going to preach about this, somewhere in there, how does God feel about the lost? He treats everything personally and he rejoices when he gets it back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Look what he says in verse, um, verse four. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep. Mr. Pharisee, what if it was your ship? Yeah. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: what if it was your money? Mm-hmm. What if it was your son? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, 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 that's, a, oh, oh. that's a great point. He just kills yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Why did the Pharisees not care about the lost? Was it personal? personal. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. For God, it's deeply personal. That's a good yeah. point. How do we get to that? By the exercise we just did. That's how you get to that. like a clear harvest moon. There it is. Wow. And they were just dying at the end of this thing. He says, yeah. what if it was your son? Yeah. Particularly powerful because it's being told by God's son. Right. So you begin to think through that and you go, whoa, this is this is clear as clear as day. So everybody see how we got from where we began 25 yeah. minutes ago to that <laughs> idea? Yeah. Wait. I understand this is new. I understand this is a new way of thinking, okay? But to get that content and context, okay, we're dealing with subject and compliment. We're digging into what's, what's, what's happening in this passage, but it's all controlled by this audience of the Pharisees. It's, it's, everything that we just did is controlled by 15, 1 and 2. Yeah. Right? That's that's the setup, right? That's our audience, original audience, Pharisees and teachers of the law, with a certain frame of reference towards the lost. The rest of this this chapter, our English chapter, is Jesus challenging and correcting that view. These parables are an answer to an issue. That's their that's your fence lines. Everybody follow what I mean by saying that's that's where you got that's home base for an expository lesson of this of this text. You're gonna be dealing with issues of lostness and saveness. You're going to be dealing with issues of how. what is God's heart towards those things? What does our heart toward, in that situation right. need to be? What prevents us from doing that? But your framework is lost and found. Yeah. That's your framework, mm-hmm. all right? And more specifically, what prevents us from having God's heart for the lost, right? That's your, that's your fence line, all right? That's your fence line. Um, let's take a um, Let's take a five minute break and stretch our leg, okay? Now we're gonna dig, dig into content and context and start talking about word studies and, and get a little bit more detailed, okay?